welcome to the At Ramsey Heights podcast, your source for all of our audio messages at Ramsey Heights Baptist Church in Batesville, Arkansas. This is Pastor Brian Coates, and I hope this encouragement from God's Word connects with you and helps guide you through your next steps on your journey with God. Enjoy today's message. I got a question for y'all to start off the sermon this morning. We're going to be in Luke chapter 2 if you want to turn there. Here's my question. Do you have a favorite Christmas song? Do this if you have a favorite Christmas song. Some of you guys do have a favorite Christmas song. My favorite Christmas song is, is Walking in a Winter Wonderland. And I know what you're thinking. Like, you big old sinner, this is about Jesus, and you're picking a secular song. Maybe the song I should have started off with is, do you have a least favorite Christmas song? One that you hear and you just go, Ugh, I hate that song. That one that's played on the radio just a little too much. <laughs> Three or four people are saying that we got a lot of grandmas in here that are very sensitive about being run over by a reindeer. I actually like that one. I love my grandma, but the sight of her seeing run from a deer would be comical to me if she didn't get caught. Uh, my, my least favorite one is uh, All I Want for Christmas is You. I hear that song and I'm just like... Ugh, like you get to get that feeling there. But there are certain songs that, that just feel like Christmas. Wouldn't you guys agree? Whether it's the ones that you love or the ones you hate, it's, it's not complete until you hear that song that you love and it's not complete until you've suffered through that song you hate. But the song that feels like Christmas the most to me is Away in the Manger. You guys know Away in the Manger? I, I, I'm not going to sing it for you. Don't worry. I don't want to run you off. But Away in a Manger, no crib for a bed. The little Lord Jesus laid down his sweet head. I love that song. Like I just feel like that is Christmas. Like I want to be on the couch with a fire going and a cup of hot chocolate and look at the tree and just that, that peaceful emotional draw of thinking of away in a manger. But if we're not careful with a song like that and with that concept of what the birth of Jesus Christ actually looks like, we might get a false view of what the first Christmas was actually like. Like, when you listen to that song, like you get this picture of the stable that Jesus was born in and he's laying in a manger and it's peaceful and Mary, even though she had just given birth, has got her hair fixed and all of her makeup on and, and she's sitting there so quietly and sweetly and Joseph, who just watched his uh, betrothed give birth to, a, ch to a, a child that he's not the father of, he's sitting there and he's just looking at, at little baby Jesus like this. Even the cows and the donkeys, they come up and they're just kind of lovingly nudging Jesus and I'm not sure, but I'm pretty sure there was a Christmas tree in the stable like that's the, that's the view that we get if we're not careful of the stable but that's not how it really happened and I think it's important for us to go back into the story and really dig in because we don't want to get a false view of what Jesus's birth was like because we might miss the point of what God was trying to do in this moment and so we're not making fun of that song but we do want to kind of correct our idea of, of what was the first Christmas really like what was it really like when Jesus Christ was born we're going to pick up the story of the birth in Jesus in Luke chapter 2. We're going to read quite a bit of this chapter today. We're going to do it in sections, so keep your Bible open. If you would, read with me verses 1 through 3. And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed, everyone into his own city. So this is how Jesus start, or God starts the story of the birth of Jesus. He, he doesn't start with a manger. He doesn't start with a stable. He starts with this, this giant world event. And there's a purpose behind that. If, if you look into the history of this, the uh, Roman Empire has a new emperor, Caesar Augustus. And this is following a time of great division in the Roman Empire. There, there had been three different rulers that ruled over three different parts. And over the last 15 years, Caesar Augustus, 
justices begin to put his empire together, killing and taking over the empire until he is dictator over the entire place. And part of his ability to consolidate power is he's got to get all of these regions which he had not formally ruled to see him as the leader. And if you want people to see you as the leader, what do you do? you make them mad because everybody gets mad at leaders, right? This is 2020, we know that. So he came up with this giant plan that in order to, to consolidate the whole Roman Empire under his uh, jurisdiction and to begin managing it, he wanted to take a giant census. Part of that was for the managing of the empire, just to know who he had and where he had. But the, the, maybe the main thing for him was he wanted tax money. Now, you can tell he's already getting off to a good start as a leader. He's going to make people travel where they don't want to go and pay taxes. But that's the part, point of this moment of the census. Now, what's important about this is not necessarily who he was or what he did in history. The point that's important about this is that the Bible records something here that is historically recorded everywhere else. It's important to look at this and understand that when Luke was writing this passage, he wanted us to know that this was a real thing. If you look into historical records, you can find records of Caesar Augustus. You can find records of Serenius. These are two real people. And our early church fathers, within 100 years of Jesus Christ being born, they record not only did this census actually happen, they record that they can go and look at the census records. We have people who say, yeah, I've seen the census records of when Jesus was born. And so our first take-home truth, given this bit of information from verses 1 through 3, is, is uh, uh, this really happened. That, that's all I've got. That this, this really happened is, is the main point. And I know what you're thinking, Brian, this is exactly why I chose to attend Ramsey Heights this morning. It's for deep theological thoughts like Jesus was really born. But if you look at the Bible and you look at the scripture, that is what the Bible is trying to get through to our heads. It's not just that this is a story. This really happened. And Luke gives us the surrounding details so that we can link the birth of Jesus to observable events. And this is not a mistake. Because honestly, this is an unbelievable story. This is, this is like a fairy tale. And if we're not careful, this fairy tale can turn into once upon a time in a land far, far away, a virgin gave birth to a child who died for our sins. And that's not the story that's happening here. The Bible wants it, uh, makes it very clear to us that this really happened, that this happened at a real time with real people, that God started enacting a real plan into the world to save the world. So if we're not careful, we can kind of be drawn into the folklore of it. And honestly, if you drive around at Christmas time, you get a little bit of the folklore of it. You see the nativity scene, and it gives you this false view of what really happened here. It's kind of become a legend or a story. But to us, it should be just as real as what we experienced yesterday and what we're experiencing at this exact moment. But understanding these events is more important than just understanding they were real. There's a huge understanding of what God is doing and how God works in this story. And what God plans to do today, we can find application from this story. What we see in the story is God is moving events of the world to coincide with the birth of his son. You've got to understand about this census thing. This, this is not a small deal. Like we read over in the Bible, like, yes, quick, get me to the stable in the manger. Where's the donkey? Where's the camel? Where's the wise man? But this is not a minor event in history. This census would have been coronavirus. It would have had the same amount of people upset and happy about it as the election of 2020. This was the major world event that the Roman Empire looks off across all of the Mediterranean region and says, we want everybody, everybody to go make uh, or to go be counted in the census. This was the biggest event of the day. But what we find here 
is that the actual big event is not what the world saw as the big event. It's the event going on in the background. And so this story of a Roman emperor controlling at this time the known world is actually subservient to God's plans. Uh, let, Let me explain what I mean by that. See, the Bible is extremely clear that God gives power to government leaders. Whether we like them or not, whether they're good or bad, whether they're evil or if they follow Christ, God puts government leaders in place, including Caesar Augustus. And throughout the history of the world, the history of people that come into power in leadership positions and in government, they were worked in there for for God. And we don't know for what purpose, but we know it was for God's plan. And so what we see in this story before we get to the birth of Jesus is God is putting people in power. He's letting the power structure of the Roman Empire shift so that he can work his plan. See, the story is not because the census matters. The census is because something else matters. That brings us to our second take-home truth, which is this. The big event of the day took place in a manger, not a palace. At this time, you have to imagine that the focus of the world was off. We've survived a crazy year here in 2020, haven't we? And and if you watch the news at all, your focus is going to be on this and on that. It doesn't matter. There's something new to be upset about every week. And we put our eyes on these worldly events. And we have to assume that if we did that, so did the people back in this day. They were looking at the governments, at the big events, at the politics. But what they miss is how is God working through those events? See, the big events in our world are less important than the plan behind the scenes. And in this year, we've, we've suffered through a lot of things that honestly, I can't explain to you what God's plan is. But I know this about God's people is that we should be looking for God's plan behind the scenes, not focusing on the big event of the world. The biggest thing that ever happened to the world happened at a time where people were upset at their government. Happened at a time of political unrest. It happened at a time of bad leadership over the government. But God had a plan. And I think you and I have forgot that. See, the plan behind this chaos is Jesus Christ comes into the world. And I love that Jesus Christ comes into the world at this time. It it wasn't a perfect time period. It, It wasn't, everything wasn't nice and easy. It was a year much like you and I are living in. Political unrest, disagreements, poverty, hunger, anger. And all of this, everything bad that happened somehow served a part of God's plan. And in 2020, as we look at the Christmas story, I think it reminds us that everything that we're experiencing today, all of the the, the problems in our country, the virus, the wars going on in the world, somehow God has allowed them to happen because they are a part of his particular plan. They missed the biggest blessing because they were looking at the chaos of the world. As we continue in Luke here, it's going to tell us about the rest of this story and and how uh, Jesus came to be. So we're going to read verses 4 through 7 here. And Joseph went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea, unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now, Caesar Augustus looked at his empire and he knew that this new tax thing is going to be unpopular. This new census thing is going to be unpopular. Everybody has to swear allegiance and obey a leader that they didn't pick and that they didn't want. 
But he was a smart political operator, and he knew that because his empire was made up of many different nationalities, different nations, different countries, that he could access the nationalism of people. And so he came up with this plan. Instead of having just the census, he said, everybody will travel to their home. They'll go back to where their roots come from. They'll remember everything about themselves. They'll see family they haven't seen in a while. And that will lessen the blow of the census and this new rule, these new rules and laws that are coming into effect. This is where we see our first, at least in Luke, our first look at Joseph. Joseph, who is betrothed to Mary, who comes home one day or comes to see Mary one day and sees that she is pregnant. And she goes, it was God, I swear. This is the first time we see him in his obedience and we see that he has to travel to Bethlehem because he is of the lineage of David. Now, if you don't know who David is, David was the great king of Israel. He was started out as a shepherd boy. And if you look in 2 Samuel, you'll find that story of David as a shepherd boy before he was anointed. And that story takes place in Bethlehem. This, this was David's home. Even as David was king, his mighty men were stationed in Bethlehem. So Bethlehem was known as the city of David. And because Joseph was a descendant of David, he had to go to the city of David. He had to travel to Bethlehem. There's part of the story here that the Bible doesn't really explain, and, and we can't really explain, but we can take some guesses. By Roman law, Joseph would not have been required to take Mary with him, but he chose to. They were betrothed, but not married. They were not living as man and wife, yet he chose to take Mary with him on this trip. Could it be that God said, you need to go if they were led by the Holy Spirit? That's possible. And, and it may have also been that, that Joseph was just trying to get Mary out of Nazareth, where she was suffering the shame of being pregnant outside of marriage. Either way, she decides to ride along with him. And while she's there, she has the child. Now, now listen to this. This is important. There's this major world event going on, this census, this new leadership over the Roman Empire. And God is using that to mobilize two people in Israel, two poor people, two, by the world standards, insignificant people, using this event and bringing this event about to mobilize them so that they move to Nazareth, or, they, or the, I'm sorry, they go to Bethlehem for the purpose of fulfilling the prophecy of Micah 5.2 that says the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. Now, we all know what happens when they get there, right? They get there and they go to a hotel and they knock on the door and say, let us in. And this mean old gruff uh, innkeeper opens the door and says, we don't have no room for you. You can sleep in the stable. Isn't that how the story goes? Isn't that how we've learned the story? The truth of it is, is that story is just, once again, part of this, this, this um, understand, a misunderstanding we have of what actually happened during Jesus' birth. If you look into the ancient Greek of the story. The word that is translated here as in, it's not incorrect, but maybe not translated as correctly as it could be. And for that reason, when we hear in, we think that they went to a hotel, but the word that's translated in here literally means dwelling place. And so what the Bible says is that there was no dwelling place for Mary and Joseph to have the child. Everywhere else, or most places else in the New Testament, this world is translated as upper room into our language. This is the same word that is used when Jesus takes his disciples up into the upper room of the house. When Jesus lodges with someone and he stays in the upper room, that is the word that is used here. And so what the Bible is saying here is there was no room for them in the upper room. Now, if we think about this, this makes a little bit more sense than the hotel story, doesn't it? Because the hotel story says that they're looking for somewhere to stay. They're too poor to really afford anything, but they go to a hotel and try to buy a room. But if you think about where Joseph's going, Joseph's going back to his home city. He would have had family here, at the very least extended family, if not close family. When you travel to where your family lives, where do you stay? 
usually a lot of us stay with our family in their guest bedroom. And that's what Joseph and Mary would have done is they would have found somebody that he was acquainted to or that he was um, related to and they would have stayed in their guest bedroom, guest bedroom, what we call the upper room. And so what we see in this story is that Joseph and Mary actually go to their own family and say, we need a place to stay. And for whatever reason, even with Mary being really, really, really pregnant, they're told, we don't, we don't have room for you in our house. They, they were rejected by their own family. But what they did say is you can stay in the extra room. You can stay in the stable. See, at this time, if you had too many people to fill up your, your upper room, what they might give you is the stable. Usually houses were built over a cave. And this is a place where livestock would come in and out of, and it's almost more like our garage today. It's attached to the house, it's part of the house, but it's not part of the living part of the house. And so Mary and Joseph, when they were turned away from the upper room, were given, in a family's household more than likely, were given what I would call the garage. And of course, in the garage is the feeding trough, the manger where Jesus was laid. And we know this is abnormal for a woman to be staying in this part of the house and, and for the baby to be laid in a manger. One, because we have common sense. But two, because when the angel comes to the shepherds and says to the shepherds, you will find him, the only identifier they give to finding the Messiah is that he is in Bethlehem and that he is laid in a manger. They don't tell him names, doesn't give him an address, doesn't tell him what, what street this will be on. It'll be the only baby in the entire city of Bethlehem laying in a manger. And this is where Mary will have her child. This is where Jesus is born. Once again, we have this, this view of it being warm and cuddly. That song, uh, Way in a Major, goes on later on to say, the cattle are lowing, the poor baby wakes, but little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. Let me ask you guys a question. When's the last time you were around a newborn baby who was awake and was not crying? Uh, this, this was not a comfortable scene for a woman to have a baby in a barn. The child did not lay there quietly. He screamed. Jesus screamed like all babies do. Joseph was in a panic like all fathers are, just exasperated. What are we going to do? How am I going to take care of them? And they're in the barn. And, and I love what God's doing here. God, God's telling us something about Jesus' mission and the fact of where he's born. Because this isn't a clean stable. The hay isn't neatly stacked just in case a baby is to arrive there. This is a dirty, filthy place. When Jessica and I were dating, she lived in Circe, and of course, any chance we had to see each other because we were so far away, we would see each other. And, and one day, it was in the summer, we were taking some cows down to the cell barn at Cersei. So I called Jessica and I said, hey, you want to come sit with us? We're going to sit and watch the cows sell for a while. And for me, like growing up, going to the cell barn with my grandpa, like that was life. Like I love that. I even love the smell. And, and so she said, yeah, I'll come over there. And she's smiling because she remembers this. I went outside as she pulled up and she pulled up in her little PT cruiser out here with all these ton trucks and trailers. And, and uh, she was dressed so cute, you guys. And, and I went out there to talk to her and grab her and I was going to escort her inside. And you know what the first thing she said to me was? what is that smell? I'm like, baby, that is the smell of money. It's okay, right? That's the first thing she said to me is, what is that smell? The cell barn smells horrible. You know why? Because there's animals in it. You guys knew that. There's animals in it. A stable smells horrible. You know why? Because there's animals in it. And the things that come out of animals smell bad. And this is where Jesus chooses to be born. This is where this moment takes place. And I think you and I would say that no baby should be born into this world of physical filth. 
Nobody should be born into this, but I, I want to challenge you to look at it this way. God chose this. This, this wasn't just an accident, like, oops, I, I forgot to arrange a place for the Son of God to be born. God chose this moment. We're talking about the God who has literally reordered a government to mobilize two people 100 miles. You don't think he could have ordered for there to have been an extra room somewhere in Bethlehem for this child to be born? And so that's our, our next take-home truth is this, is that Jesus was born into filth by choice. Jesus was born into filth by choice. I guess the next question is why? It, like, God, is that really necessary? Was that really part of the big plan? Did it have to be a manger? Did it have to be a stable? Did it have to smell so bad? Why, why is it that you would choose for Jesus to be born into this dirty, nasty place? I think this is symbolic of what God is doing. He, he wanted it to be special. He wanted it to be different. He wanted this to be awe-inspiring for a reason. I can tell you that after Jessica and I were married and, and we had a baby coming and we were discussing, do we want to have the child at the Batesville Hospital or the Searcy Hospital? You want to know what didn't come into the discussion? The Searcy cell barn was not brought up into that. And you know that because I'm still standing here. That's, that's how you know. Well, we know that this is not normal for children to be born in this way. So God is showing us something. When Jesus is born into a world of physical filth, in a room with animals that make messes, that they have no respect, they knock over things, they break things, they make a mess of everything, they use the bathroom where they're standing because whatever goes through an animal's mind is what they're gonna do at that moment. But what this tells us about Jesus is that he wasn't scared of the dirt and the filth. And that's good because not only was Jesus born into a physically filthy world, Jesus was born into a spiritually filthy world. A world where humans have made a mess of everything. If we don't like it, we break it. And whatever we feel like doing at the moment, that's what we do. And that's the world that Jesus is coming into. With Jesus' arrival into the world, this is what he's saying. He says, there is nothing too dirty for me. There is nothing too filthy for me. And that's important because he's coming into our lives, lives that are spiritually dirty. Now, I know what you're thinking. That like, yeah, Brian, I know what a spiritually dirty life looks like. I live next to it. That's my neighbor's. They've got all these things. There's a new girl over there every other weekend of this guy that lives on my right. They're partying until 3 a.m. over here at this house on my left. I've seen physically dirty lives or, or spiritually dirty lives. But I've got news for all of us is that when Jesus came into my life, he came into a spiritually dirty life. And when he came into your life, he came into a spiritually dirty life. And if we're honest, I think that our lives are still spiritually dirty sometimes. But nothing is too dirty for Jesus. Nothing is off limits to him. There is no filth that he is scared of. You see, Jesus shows his willingness to get dirty in this moment, and he does it for the rest of his life. For the rest of his life, you see him surrounded by filth for his mission of saving people. He ran around with prostitutes and thieves. When people ran from lepers, people who had to walk around and yell, unclean, and everybody would run away from them, Jesus ran to them. When Jesus came in contact with any sinner who had done anything, he ran to them because there's no filth that Jesus can't handle. And that's the point of the manger. That's the point of the stable is this announcement. You're not too dirty. You and I are not too dirty for Jesus. We should have been. It's only by his grace that we're not. But nothing is too dirty for him. 
And you see that in the first person or the first people that, uh, that his birth was announced to. The, the announcement even goes to dirty people. Let's continue reading here, verses 8 through 14. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the flock, keeping watch over the flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, on, and on earth goodwill towards men. This may be my favorite part of the Christmas story. Maybe I'm wrong about this. Y'all gonna kick me out of church. It's, it's not the birth of Jesus. My favorite part of the Christmas story is the shepherds. I love the shepherds. And you can kind of feel the night. Like they're out in the fields at night. I'm sure it was clear and it was cool and it was crisp. The stars are shining. They're sitting around a fire. The, the sheep are kind of mingling around, getting ready to go to sleep. And just silence. And out of nowhere an angel appears. And it's not just an angel sits down beside him and goes, hey guys, I got something to tell you. This angel appears and it says, the glory of the Lord shone all the way around them. What that tells me is this, this angel left immediately God's presence. He was so excited to come tell them what's going on. And he was still glowing from being in the presence of God. And he gives us some excited thing. It's like, listen, there's a savior has been born. Everything is changing. The night changes immediately. And I love this part. It says, unto you, a Savior has been born. A child has been born. Not, not just a child has been born as an event. The, this child was given to you and, and given to me. If you look at where the focus of this statement is, this is a, a personal statement. This is not just an event that we read in a newspaper or, or even a book that, that some child somewhere was born who would do something. This is personal. This child came personally for me and personally for you and personally for those shepherds, even personally for the people who would, want, who would later crucify him. And, and the central theme of this entire event, as we've looked at the Christmas story from the beginning to this moment has been this. It is about a personal connection. Jesus Christ came to be personally connected to each one of us and for us to make a personal decision to follow him. And this announcement goes to the shepherds. The angel comes to the shepherds and says, unto you, personally for you, there's a child. For you, shepherds. To understand why that's important, you need to understand this. That shepherds were dirty, nasty people. This, this filth that we talked about Jesus being born into, shepherds lived in the filth. They lived in the fields. They didn't take showers. They, they were often seen as thieves and robbers. It was once commented that if shepherds moved through, they were gonna take something with them and leave nothing behind. Shepherds were not respected in the society at all. And the first people God says, go tell them. He says, go tell the dirty shepherds, the filthy shepherds, these shepherds with the sin in their life, Go tell the ones that are outcast in society. Go tell them that this is for them. But these shepherds were special among shepherds. 
One mile outside of Bethlehem, there's a place called Migdal, Migdal Adir, and that literally translates the Tower of the Flock. And at this time, there was a giant tower built out here, and it was a watchtower for the temple flocks, for, for the sheep that were being born and bred and raised for the sake of temple sacrifice. This is where they were kept outside of Bethlehem. And virtually all shepherds and all sheep in this region were kept for that reason. And as a matter of fact, the Tower of the Flock is mentioned in Micah 4.8, just a few verses before we're told the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. So these sheep that these shepherds were watching on were not just sheep to be eaten. These were special sheep. These were sheep that were without blemish, that were flawless, that were being raised for the purpose of being sacrificed. They were being raised for the Passover, which is a ritual that tells us about the coming of Christ and the sacrifice that Christ will be. Uh, this is exciting. If you think about what these shepherds are, if this is true, the shepherds had inspected newborn lambs for sacrifice to make sure that they were flawless and unblemished. These are the first people that get to inspect the final sacrificial lamb. See, the entire Bible talks of Jesus Christ, not just as a baby and not just as a man and not even as the Son of God. To describe what Jesus came here to do, they, the Bible calls him the Lamb of God. So these shepherds, and in this moment, not only points to God's ability and wants to come to the dirty and to the filthy, these shepherds are already pointing to the end of this child's life. When this child, Jesus Christ, will die as a sacrifice for the sins of the world. Let's finish our story here, verses 15 through 20. And it came to pass, as the angels were gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds said one to another, Let us now go even into Bethlehem, and see the thing which has come to pass, which the Lord hath made known unto us. And they came with haste, and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. And when they had seen it, they made known abroad, saying which was told them concerning the child. And all they heard it wondered at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen as it was told unto them. They go looking after the angels announced to them. You, you'll find a baby laying in a manger. That's how you'll know who we're talking about. This is this is not normal. And so the shepherds say, we've got to go see this. Must be important if an angel appears. We've got to go see this baby. And they go and they, they search Bethlehem and they find Joseph and Mary and they find Jesus laying exactly where the angel said, laying in a filthy, dirty manger. And I love their reaction. It should be our reaction. They stay there and they observe the baby they, they see what it is and then they leave there immediately and the Bible says they are rejoicing and they begin telling everybody they know. Look at what happens though from the moment that the angel announces this to them until they see the child. The Bible says that they, they quickly went to Bethlehem to start go looking but they were really more investigating. The Bible doesn't say they were telling anybody. They didn't tell people along the way, hey, we saw angels and they said there's a baby. They told people after they had seen the child, after they had seen Jesus. And this goes back to what we were talking about with a personal connection. Once they had experienced seeing God, once they had experienced God, they could then praise, they could then worship. But up to that point, they couldn't because it really came down to a personal experience. Our last take-home truth is this, is that we rejoice today because of a personal connection. 
See, we have the same reason to rejoice that the shepherds did. Jordan, if you wanna go ahead and come on up here. We have the same reason to rejoice that the shepherds did. We have the ability to have a personal experience with God. We have the ability to have a personal experience with Jesus Christ because he came here to get dirty for you and me. So from this moment forward, as we leave this church and as we walk in our lives, it shouldn't be about thinking, oh, I know that this child existed. We should be going out into the world crying out. We know the answer. We know the specialness of the child. And this morning, as we get ready for our response time, I just want to ask you this. Do you really know and have personally experienced Jesus Christ?